Welcome back to Orange. An idea turned into reality. You see, everyone has a story. And this is the area and the place where we bring on change makers, trailblazers who are trying to navigate and change the world for the better. And this is the spotlight where they can come on and share that story. I'm your co-host Oliver, here with another co-host Benjamin, PhD student, medical student respectively, both co-founders of an edutech company called Syncidium. And before we delve deep, we'd just like to thank Melbourne Connect Coworking for sponsoring this episode of Orange. Today's guest, the executive director of Melbourne Connect, an expert in AI and natural language processing, a mentor, advisor, a friend, Professor Ed Hovey. <laughs> Lovely to see you again. Hello. Welcome. Ed, thank you for inviting me, I want to say. This is great to be here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure having you on. So... Before we get into it, perhaps you could just touch a little bit on your current role and some of the things that you're working on at the moment so that the audience can understand who you are. Yeah, so I don't even know where to begin. I'm. Many people think toward the end of my career, but I still have a lot of mileage to go, I think. Um, I started off doing an AI PhD at Yale University. And then I spent most of my career until 18 months ago in the United States. And I did research in AI, machine learning, language technology, specifically things like large language models, which we all know today, right? ChatGPT. So I knew that stuff before it was popular. And it's really interesting now to see uh, what it feels like to be in the spotlight when you have a million people asking you questions about that. So part of my job here is as executive director of Melbourne Connect, which as you know, is at the University of Melbourne, kind of a think tank, which links university research with industrial application. And my job is to try to bridge that gap, that chasm of death. And it's sort of interesting and sort of frustrating. I'll tell you later <laughs> a little bit more about the experiences. The other half of my job is to be a professor in computer science here and to have to supervise students, to do a bit, bit of teaching. And that I enjoy a lot. I've always enjoyed working with students and to see the creativity and the love, the dedication that people bring to an interesting topic when it grabs their imagination. So I'm trying to balance my life between these two halves, as well as having a family and all the normal things one does. Of course. Let's take a step back all the way to when you first started to get a, or first decided to do a PhD in, in machine learning and natural language processing. Is that right? Yep. Would have been a long time ago. Long time ago. That was a long time ago. And I tell you why. Can I tell you why? Because Absolutely. It's kind of was, my, uh, it's, it starts strange to the story. My my father was agnostic, religious. He had because his father was very strict Dutch Reformed Calvinists, sort of Afrikaner. I grew up in, in Johannesburg. His father was Dutch, very strict. We were not allowed to play cards when my grandfather was in the home, etc. My mother was a Christian scientist of a different kind altogether. Right? She believed there is no such thing as the sin and the devil. You don't have a body. It's just the soul. My father says, none of this. So when my grandfather's visiting, he says, let's read the Bible. My mother says, okay. My father says, no. So they have a fight. And eventually, they do read the Bible. Then my grandfather starts talking about sin. And my mother says, there is no such thing as sin. It's just a mistake. My father says, I'm staying out of this. We kids, we run away and we hide under the bed. And my grandfather comes looking for us with his, with his walking stick. And from this, I sit there and I think, what am I? What's my soul? Do I have a soul? What is this thing, right? And I start reading religion, and I start reading philosophy, and I start reading all kinds of stuff, but I love math. I love math, and I love computer science. And eventually I think, psychology, no, you can't measure anything. Philosophy, who knows, right? But if I get 
build a computer program that has a soul, and I can test it, and I can point to the piece of code that gives me that thing, then I've proven something. I want to do AI. And AI was new then, and AI was all exciting then. Not new, it was sort of 30 years old by then, it was sort of in the 80s. But I thought, I want to do this. And I went to Yale and I studied there AI. And then they, they said to me, well, which direction? I thought, language, human language is a great window into the soul, right? It shows you your conceptualizations, how you think, why you think, what you do. That's what I'd like to do. So I did my thesis on language production. And the question was, why do you say the same thing differently to different people at different times? If you have a message and you figure out how to say it, just say it. And the answer, of course, is because it depends on, on your hearer and your circumstances. So I built a machine that told the same little set of facts, about 150 little facts, in over 100 different ways. There was about 14,000 lines of code. There's no machine learning in those days in that thing. And it, it's, I could set the parameters, and I, I always modeled it was me speaking to my supervisor or me speaking to some friends or my, my, my family or something. And one day, I set this, I'm speaking to my supervisor, who was a well-known mean guy, not a, nice, not a nice person at all. And the machine goes, and I have little time, and he's got one opinion, and I have the opposite opinion and stuff, and the machine comes out with nothing. So I say, oh, no. So I start debugging. I spend 45 minutes debugging, and everywhere I look, it's correct. The machine did the right thing. It said, you want me to tell this person who's antagonistic under time pressure this thing, but he has different opinions to you, and he's superordinate to you, subordinate to him, and you don't want to alienate him, and et cetera, et cetera. So don't do this. Don't say a long sentence with a softener inside, you know, something, although something. Just, just rather go down and, and eventually there's nothing to say. I didn't expect this, but the machine did the right thing for the right reasons. And that gave me such a kick, I cannot forget, I will never forget that moment when I understood this machine did exactly what a human being would do, we all understand, for the right reasons, even though I had not programmed it, I swear I had not programmed it that way, I didn't know it could do that. Then I thought it's possible to build something that begins to model not a soul maybe, but some kind of intelligence, something more than just 14,000 lines of little pieces of code together. That gave me the inspiration to continue for the rest of my life on this journey. That's where I came from. That's an incredible background, I must say. Quite interesting, the contrast between the philosophy of getting in, probably how challenging it would have been at the time, and then... I suppose your orange moment, the moment where you realized that this was something that you're going to spend the entirety of your life pursuing. So, yeah, uh, moving on that topic, like experiencing AI at the time, I, I would imagine that a lot of people would have been skeptical about what you were researching. How did you go about navigating that? That's another interesting story. If you have a moment, I'll tell you. Absolutely. So, after I graduate, my supervisor, my training was sort of in the conceptual, cognitive aspects of AI. How does the mind work? How do people work when they do something? And shortly after this, there was this whole focus on machine learning because AI understood, look, the world is more complex than you can write down in a set of simple rules like a, like a sort of a decision tree or an expert system. But if you do machine learning, you can build a system that learns how to copy people's behavior. You just have to give it a lot of examples. 
So by now, there's several hundred machine learning algorithms, but by then there were a few. And so there was this whole big push in machine translation, which went into all of language processing on, let's learn to do translation. And so there's a group at IBM in upstate New York, and they built the first statistical machine translation engine, which now today, its descendants we know as Google Translate and others, exactly the descendants of that approach. So in my lab, I then went to, I took a job at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And in my lab, I was running a little group there. I had a visitor from Bell Labs, and he came and he spent a year with me. And he was exactly, but exactly opposed diametrically opposite to me in approach, where I came from the cognitivist perspective and say, how do people do it? How do people understand the meaning and translate it out? He said, who cares? I've got a machine. I've got some data. I train the machine. It looks at word patterns and it just does this. And he hammered at me. He was not a soft person. He was a very ambitious, aggressive kind of a personality. And after a year, I, I had schizophrenia. I read a paper and I look at this and I say, this is a piece of junk, this paper. It's complete nonsense, right? Because it's not cognitive. And then I put my other hat on and I say, but actually, this is great. It works. The cognitive stuff doesn't work, but this thing is engineering strong. It does work. And I didn't know where to go. I didn't know. I embodied in myself, thanks to these two influences, this dilemma. Shall I say left side or right side? That was very typical of NLP at that time. There were debates, formal debates. There was a lot of discussion. It was just before what they call AI winter, when AI had had a lot of funding, a lot of it didn't work. This whole push toward making it more engineering, more machine learning, make it work, that is just starting. The funding dropped out, and we went through about four years of winter. A lot of funding, a lot of people lost their jobs, and then it started up again, but now in the engineering mode. So now I said... I know, I know in my heart that if I ignore what the human does, I do so at my peril. People are still better than machines, even the best machine in learning algorithm. But I know equally well in my heart that if I don't make a thing that works, that proves the point to a hard world outside there who wants to make money, I'm just wasting my time. I'm sitting in a little game here playing academics in, the white, in an ivory tower. So all through my career, I tried to force myself to balance to say what does perspective one look like and what does perspective two look like and how can I, in that creative tension, juxtapose the two positions. Sometimes you go one way, sometimes you go the other way. And, and now in hindsight, I realize it's actually been lucky for me because when people invite me to come and give invited talks and things or ask me on panels to give judgments or, or to be PhD supervisor, external committees, anything, they want exactly that wider perspective, being able to balance and being able to say A or B or B or A, why, which, where are the strong points, where are the weak points and so forth. I got that from that time of, of tension and, and discomfort. And now I'm comfortable living this way and I'm happy to do this. I enjoy doing this. Of course, it's hard for my students. They hate me. So <laughs> say, what the hell are you telling me to do? Yes, last week you told me this, and now you're telling me it's not good enough and stuff like this. And I, I try to make explicit this message. The world is a complicated thing. The world is a multifaceted thing. It's not simple. And if you simplify too much, you are making a mistake. You're losing something. Equally, if you complexify too much, if you start hiding behind the complexity and try to impress people with how wonderful you are, you're making it more complex than you should, and then you just expose that you don't know what you're talking about. Einstein said once, don't make anything more complex than it is. 
but don't make it simpler than it is either, right? So you have to find that balance point, and then you must say, for my problem, for my task, for what I'm doing, I need to have, I have to have A, B, C, D. I can prove it to you. But I don't have to dress that up in fancy language and formulas and all kind of nonsense when that's not necessary. Give the essential insight and allow people's native intelligence to see the thought, and then you dress it up with all the formula and all the mathematics and all that, because then the insight is there. That balance point, that's the hard thing to achieve. And that's what I strive to reach in all my work and all the talks I give in everything I do. Schizophrenia. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think you touched on a very interesting point there, which is this sort of like draw in this balance between building things that are theoretically interesting and building things that are practicable, practicable, that wider society wants you to build. And now you've ended up at the intersection of sort of commerce and research. You're supervising students and you're also the executive director of the Melbourne Entrepreneurial Centre and Melbourne Connect. How did you make that transition from a researcher into someone working at the intersection of these exciting industries all at the same time? That's an interesting question, Ben. So it's it's sort of... When I think about what happened in my life, I was at the University of Southern California and I ran eventually a fairly large group and I was always on soft money. I was always approaching the funders, DARPA and other places for research money. I was never funded by teaching or by some institution. So any group I ran essentially felt like a company and I had to bring in $5 million or whatever it was per year to fund all my students and all the programmers and things. It really felt like being a CEO. Equally, it felt like I have to make my case. I have to be able to say why what we do is going to be valuable and useful, not just somebody sitting in an ivory tower. That was good practice. All the colleagues in that institute where I was, they were all soft money people. There was no deadwood. There's nobody sitting back and say, well, I'll teach another course and I can just coast along. Didn't happen. Then after a while, after a few years, I went to Carnegie Mellon University, which is arguably the best computer science university in the world. And it was very much that feeling there too. And I built up a big group there and we had a lot of money and did a lot of interesting work with companies and with, with for the government, etc. And increasingly, people started asking me, look, you have a sort of a research focus, you're doing interesting research, you're trying to build out the theory, the cognitive or other background of what you're doing, but it has a hard edge, a practical edge too, that it works. Why don't you go to DARPA? So the way it works at DARPA, DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in the United States. It was set up about 50, 60 years ago to fund innovative, forward-looking research. So DARPA is the people who first funded the internet and who first funded geopositioning, the satellite geopositioning, who first funded self-driving cars and things. All that came, the original money from DARPA. When you go to DARPA, it's a position of immense trust. There's about 110 what they call program managers and there's a thousand people in the building in Washington, and all of the rest, they they support the program managers, and they say, we trust you on a short-term, maximal two, three years, you can be here to come from outside to bring one idea of what's gonna change in the future, what's not out in five years' time, but 10 years' time, how can we enable that? And it has to have practical social impact. It has to, of course, military, it's DARPA. It has to have some kind of military use too. It has to be defensible. It has to be properly scientifically grounded. It has to be doable by the research forces you have in the United States and in other friendly countries. And we'll give you $30 million a year 
just tell us that story. If we believe you, we'll give you the money and you just make it happen. So can you imagine, can you imagine the, the, the joy, the immense power almost, the immense gift if you can go there and have that job? So I was lucky they asked me and I went. I spent two and a half years there. It was an immensely ex great experience. It was the best job of my life. I was surrounded by a team of six professionals. One was legal expert, one was financial expert, one was military expert, two were sort of technical experts. And it's, it's a kind of, it's not militaristic, but there's this kind of attitude of, you want to know something? By three o'clock that afternoon, you know that thing, it's there. You want to talk to somebody? By the next morning, the, the, the arrangement has been done. You talk to them. So you can get something done very quickly. When you have $30 million, the researchers stand outside the door. They want to talk to you. And, you know, so you can really advance things according to what you believe, because you've been given this trust, is the right place to go. So when I thought, wow, I would like to have this experience to take ideas and see them come to fruition and see them translate out into the real world in my little area of sort of a part of AI and language technology. Where can I do that? At leaving DARPA, I could have gone back to Carnegie Mellon University and been a professor and had students and all, and it was great. But then Melbourne Connect appeared on our horizon and they said, we have this building here $500,000 building, 3,000 people when it's full, all kinds of things. Companies are here. There's a science gallery here. There's a makerspace with lathes and things. There's a kindergarten here. There's, there's the whole uh, ICT uh, you know, department, a school here. There's all of engineering here. All this is in this building. There's, there's this entrepreneur center here to try to bring the power of the University of Melbourne, which is not inconsiderable, out into the world and to change society. And there's all of Australia, right? It's not, it's not as big as the United States, but it's not nothing. Well-trained people, no graft, no dishonesty. The economy works here, right? Things work properly. Mm. I thought, that's not a bad proposition. My wife had been here on the faculty in the East Asian languages for, and we had a house not far from here. So I said, okay, let's come. We have two nine-year-olds. I didn't want them to grow up in what looked to me increasingly problematic, torn American society with school shootings and the paradise of Donald Trump and things like this. All of that contributed to saying, I'll come here. So I came. And now it's, I've been here for 18 months and it's been really interesting for, to me to learn to fit into a large uh, Australian type, British type university system on the university side and to fit into the sort of industrial academic ecosystem that we have here in Australia to get used to what's possible and what's not possible. Mm. You know, Ed, I find your perspective on that, on the topic in general, quite fascinating because coming from a research background myself, medical research, Peter Mack, one of the leading cancer centers in Australia, the uh, the the mentality of a researcher having the entrepreneurial spirit is hard to come by. It's not very conventional. And so I'm curious, you know, you've mentioned that a lot of your experiences have led you to this position and that a lot of the things that you've done have been entrepreneurially driven where that mentality actually came from. So you mentioned as well that you grew up in you know, Johannesburg, you had people around you including your grandfather mentors supervisors who were quite quite harsh at times and I'm curious did that at all play a role in creating that entrepreneurial mentality that 
you seem to be displaying? Actually, I would say in one way, yes. The way that comes to mind is my father. He was an engineer. He had companies all his life, but he loved to invent things. And had he been born 30 years later, he would have been a natural programmer. He just had the talent for procedural thinking and simplifying things. When the first little HP calculator came out that you could program like six instructions on, he bought it. And he was programming all the time. My sister, who now lives in the Cotswolds in England, she's a programmer, a professional programmer. She loves it. Two of my brothers are engineers too. It's just a scientific kind of family. But my father loved simplicity. I remember when I was about eight, he invented a toilet flusher mechanism. Now, if you look inside the toilet flush, there's this arm, there's this ball valve that's floating in the water, and this arm and this lever, and it's a big mess. He said, surely it could be simpler. So he took a little plastic bucket, like a yogurt bucket, and underneath he put a little articulated plastic pipe and he sort of put them together, cut a hole inside, and he had the lever on this. So when you depress the lever, it pressed this bucket underneath the water level. Water flowed in, the bucket stayed down until all the water was out. And then when the water was too low, the bucket floated up. What could be simpler? And so he tried, and I remember him saying, I asked him many years later, what happened? He said, I got a patent on this, but there was no plastic that could withstand 100,000 depressions inside a water environment at the time. The thing just perished. So I thought, what a pity. What a beautiful idea in its simplicity, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and what a pity it was lost. I remember another example. He was inventing a, a windmill, a kind of a, a sort of, it was a very strangely shaped, it didn't have four blades like a normal little windmill that you see in the farms that turn, you know, and the wind pumps water out. He invented a strangely shaped thing and he built one. And I was then about 12. My brothers and I had to sit in the car and hold this thing. It was heavy. It was pointing out the window. And he was driving at 60 miles an hour exactly. And my mother was looking and counting the rotations. And so he was correlating wind speed and rotations and all this stuff. And that's what he did. I admired that. I thought, I would like to do something like that. Just simple and elegant and clean and beautiful to change the world. And I think those values came to all of us in the family. It's, 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 there's a lot of talk. Politicians are necessary, I suppose, and academics are necessary, and all kinds of people are necessary to make society run. But ultimately, if you ask why are we living well, why do we have toothbrushes? Why do we have health? Why do we have eyeglasses? Why do we have buildings that survive? It's because some scientifically minded person sat down and said, we can talk and pray and do all we like, but somebody has to do something that's simple and believable and doable and repeatable. And that person made one change and the wheel and, and energy, electricity, you name it. So all those things inspired me looking back over the, 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 the sort of eons of history to say, I'd like to do something too. I would like to do something. I would love to be able to add something to the knowledge that we have. And I will work very hard with all the talents I've been given to try to do something of this kind. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you're lucky and little things work and sometimes you have big dreams. I think my big dream today is I would love to add one word to the English language. Could you imagine <laughs> what a blast that would be if you could invent a word and it would just become a word that everybody knew and they didn't even know it came somewhere? Wouldn't that be a great way to just add something to culture yourself? I suppose it adds to legacy. 
as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what, what does legacy mean to you? I thought about this a lot when I uh, had children nine years ago before I wasn't really interested and my life wasn't that way. And I used to say legacy means something like a large publication record and certain patents and certain just students and people who say we were inspired by that person and we do what we do differently because of that person. And that's part of legacy. But there's a, a more human side of legacy also, which is just I've done something that I'm proud of that's carried forward in other people. And having two children, having children is a big, a, a kind of a legacy that we all can have as humans. And it's a, it's a gift, a natural gift to us. One person once told me, when you have a child, it's like living in your house and suddenly you open a door and there's a floor in your house you didn't know about. And you walk in that floor and it's sunny and it's warm and it's just nice. It's a nicer place than any other floor of your house. You just want to be there. That's what it's like having children. And you realize all your passion and your dedication and your love you put into the children so that they can grow and go and take that further. That's part of legacy too. And that's a legacy we can all do. It doesn't matter how clever we are or what job we do. We must do the best we can for the next generation. We must give them as much as we can. I think that's an important part of legacy also. That's yeah. something that uh, you share with my mother, actually. She always says that, you know, your legacy is going to be something different. You want to change the world. I want to change the world by how much I can give to the next generation, how much I can support you and your cousin, the other kids in the family. So it's inspiring to hear that again for a second time from someone else. I, I guess I want to sort of touch on something that, that you've done in your life, which is you've taken a gamble on Australia, on this country, and it was a bit of a gamble to take, right? What have you found your experience to be of this country, of the academic and also the entrepreneurial side? What are we doing well? What are we not doing well? And where do you think it can go from here? That's, uh, that's a loaded question for me at this point <laughs> in my life. So I'll guard my words. So I'm, I'm glad on balance that we came that I came and that we came because it's been a great broadening of my perspective. It's shown me things that I never knew could be. So, and some of them are positive and some of them are less positive. And I'm aware, I don't want to sort of sound like the ugly American because there is always the danger of being that sort of overweening ugly American with an arrogance that's not well-founded. But there are certain things in that culture that I have come to respect and and, and like more than I did when I was there. And mainly that is an entrepreneurial spirit, a spirit of being willing to take a risk. Australia is very risk averse in my experience. And I think it's because people here have a, a very comfortable life because the government is very well set up and there's a lot of money from gold and other natural resources. That means when we have when we are safe and we're good in school and everything is fine and you know, why should we take a risk? Why should we risk losing something that we have built up and so on? Just because it might be much bigger, but it might also be nothing. In the States, it's not like that. There's much, it's a much harsher environment. It's a much harder country. There are many, many people who are really unhappy, who have to, who cannot retire, who have to work all the time. That's harsh and I don't like it. 
it has negative side effects. It has people voting for crazy people who promise them dreams, right? Like Trump, that just <laughs> not feasible, right? Because the middle class in America is busy splitting. It's not happening here because the middle class and the lower middle class is really being socially supported here by the government. The counter, which I like, the counter of that is the entrepreneurial risk-taking um, the readiness, the willingness to take risks is also not here. The entrepreneurial class in Australia is not supported, in my view, well enough. I was talking to somebody, a Vietnamese person, who immigrated here as a professor at another university last week, and he told me, I did a startup. I started my company, he said. And at the point, I got some, some equity in my company, formal, and at the point it vested, that means it become my, my equity, I was still not allowed to sell it, there was no money in the company, but at the point it vested, the government came and taxed me 49%. <laughs> no surprise. And I said, I have no money, this is just a piece of paper, when I sell it, I'll pay my tax, I'm quite willing. They said, no, we'll take the tax now, thank you very much, and we'll hold it for you, and when you do sell it, we'll figure out. And he said... I don't have the money. I can't pay you this amount of money. I don't have it. It's just a piece of paper. They taxed him. He closed the company. He now has a company in Vietnam. Over the past six months, they built their own ChatGPT from scratch. You don't see people here building their own ChatGPT from scratch in Australia. He did it with his company in Vietnam because he couldn't do it here. That, I find, a, a short-sighted attitude of governments here, and this happened under the previous government, it wasn't a, a labor versus a liberal, liberal versus labor thing. It was just the nature of the attitude of people living here, in my view, is very much protective and support. We, we like everybody, we look after everybody and things, but we don't necessarily push people to their limit to flourish. My final little anecdote on this point. When I met with my children's teachers about a month ago, they're, not, they're in grade four, both of them said, your children are fine, they're average, they're great. I said, excuse me, they're <laughs> average? average. <laughs> yes, they're average, they're great, they're fine. I said, well, what can they do more? No, they don't need to do anything more, they're average, they're great. And I look at them and say, I don't want my children to be average. They say, what do you mean? They're fine. They're average. They're fine. She didn't understand my point, and it took me a while to understand her point that it's okay to be, we're part of the group, we mustn't, the, the tall poppy syndrome is a word that I've learned here, mm. which my wife knows from Japan, the sticking out, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. These two, that attitude is not conducive, in my view, to excelling in any society at it is to the detriment of Australia, which has a higher index of capable, capably educated people, of honest people, of a society that works according to rules, where you have clean data management and ethical behavior and all this. Australia has that. Not many countries do. Australia has a phenomenal basis and a lot of money from gold to do a lot more than it does. It would not be the case then that young entrepreneurs who start companies run off to the United States because <laughs> you can't do it here because you get taxed 49% mm. before you even get the money. Mm. This is a very sad state of affairs for this country and I'm working all I can to try to say, start your company, but don't go away. Start your company, put one foot in, in America, make your money there, but keep one foot here so that you can keep 
educating people here and making things change here. In this building, in Melbourne Connect, we have people like that. We have a company that where his CEO is an Australian. He lives now in Los Angeles, but he has his house here. Mm. He comes back. I see him every six weeks. He comes back. The company's headquarters is here. Some of their creative hard work is here, but the sales is there. I don't know. I'm not a politician. I'm not an economist, but I think we must try to do, if we cannot make the entrepreneurial spirit here, at least we can make it partially. That's something we have to do in this country. Couldn't agree more, Ed. I might just say something briefly. I, I do believe that risk aversion is the killer of innovation, as to you know, complement what you're saying. And a good example of that is, particularly within Australia, there are systems in place that disincentivize people to take risk, particularly in research which is where a lot of the innovation may have come from or a lot of good ideas are coming from. But because of the way that the system is created, it doesn't give you the ability to be rewarded for going out there and taking the big risk. You're often, in, you're often rewarded in research based on your ability to get publications, for example. And that alone is probably a poor management system of creating a system for innovation because now you're being incentivized to just publish even if it's low-hanging fruit. And therefore, people, they won't go out and they won't do the big impact innovative ideas in research because they won't get publications and they won't get funding to continue their, their work. So, yeah, I, I think you've also touched on some important cultural and systemic issues as well uh, in terms of we have a general sort of aversion to risk mm. and that might even come from a lack of desperation in the same way that a lot of, you know, Stanford grads emerge into a into a market where you have high student loans, no one's there to support you. To pay that off, you have to work a corporate job or you can start a biotech company or a tech company and become a billionaire and then pay it off that way. And the second point is there's a cultural sort of um, hegemony here that disincentivizes you from standing out among the crowd and doing things that are unique and there is a sort of uh, way that you get painted when you when you start a company in Australia which is oh you think you're better hmm. you think you think that you think you're better than me yeah like <laughs> you, you know, why don't you want to just you know make 200k a year and working in a corporate job why do you want to change the world what about you well why do you think you're good enough to do such a thing and that's something that I feel like if we continue allowing our best entrepreneurs to leave the country, then their ideas and their, the way that they articulate those ideas gets lost. And so you get a group of, of students growing up in this country that ex get exposed to the ideas of, you know, go into medicine, go into law. Conventional pathways. Exactly. So... This is a building and, and like what you're doing is essentially the, the gospel's work, right? You are encouraging our youth and the people that have the most potential to make systemic change, to make that change through entrepreneurship. And I remember you told us uh, when we first were, were raising money for our company, Syncidium, you said, when we, you know, in terms of going to investors, you said, don't be an Australian when you go and talk to investors be an American, right? <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and that's what we did, and, and it's, yeah. it's going well. So thank you for that. But my question to you is, how do we create the best parts of American culture? How do we advocate for that while 
not letting the middle class sort of waste away. Yeah, that's that's something I've thought about increasingly and worriedly over the 18 months I've been here, because you could say at the starkest simplification, you can't have it both ways. Either you have a semi-socialist system where everybody, nobody stands out and everybody's protected and we have a lot of gold to fund us, or you have a purely capitalist system where those who are strong, an Ayn Rand kind of attitude, those who are strong survive and make it great and the rest perish. And of course, nobody wants either. Of course, one has to live somehow in the middle and to actually bring about the change where the balance is the right kind of mixture in a constantly changing world with constant barrages of attacks from outside. It's not as if uh, technology isn't being reinvented and invented and, and pushed from outside, from the U.S., from China, from other places. One has to be one has to be fairly alert, and one has to be on one's toes. One of the biggest um, challenges I think we're going to face is how AI comes in and is being how it will be absorbed in society in the next fifty years. So, Australia, the U.S., Europe, China even Russia, have to face that challenge each in their own way. If we say we are now in Australia in a slightly perhaps too socialist setup, mentality economically but also culturally, and in the States we are, in my view, too capitalistically set up economically and culturally, AI comes in as a large enough potential disruptor of the situation on both sides. If we're wise, we would use AI, the automation it brings, the way it changes the economy drastically, in a way to, to sort of equalize things, to bring things more central. So I look at this and I think, well, my experience of AI, think of what ChatGPT has done and how it's busy unlocking day by day potential that people never knew they had to make their jobs easier. Think about self-driving cars day by day, right? It's not the case that AI just comes and eats people's jobs. I still don't see an automatic taxi in my here in Melbourne, right? It's, it's, there's still people driving taxis. But when you go on a long distance drive, perhaps you don't have to sit on the freeway and drive anymore. You turn your, your chair around and play cards with everybody in the car. It's not clear to what degree AI is going to completely get rid of jobs and to what degree is this going to make jobs more easy or more or more make the ability to do your job well to make money to make wealth more quickly it's not clear exactly how how ai is going to be playing out here and deployed it seems to me if one can take a measured approach where you say look ai has the potential to make to accelerate wealth creation right it's going to make things more smooth, more quick, better for a lot of enterprises, government and private and, and so on, throughout, across the board. So one could say, well, in a pure capitalist system, you cut out those people that used to do that job and they just perish or they have to work three jobs or they have to do painting out graffiti or something silly. Or you can say in a more socialist way, well, no, it's just going to be the slave of everybody and we're all going to sit back and do nothing. Right, I don't like either of those alternatives. I would like to say, let's see how we can harness AI to make 
the jobs that we do now better and let's see equally how the people who are liberated who don't have to do those jobs anymore how we can find other jobs that we cannot do today and we can have them do to make a more humane society for instance it is nice when you're in a hospital and somebody comes and hugs you and gives you flowers that's not a robot a robot cannot hug you and give you flowers it just don't work that way right <laughs> so those people who who are warm people people and like to hug and bring flowers and they don't have to do much they must just say listen to the story and turn the bed around and stuff they may have to do all kinds of other work today just to survive let's pay them a decent wage to do the hugging and we take them away they don't have to do the other job they might have hated because they like hugging it's easy right but we pay them properly to do the hugging so that sounds a little more socialist but we don't have to go crazy we must still balance right but if ai does create a lot of wealth that wealth should not go to the top 1% we don't need more elon musks and steve jobses and uh, we just don't need them we don't need the income ratio from the bottom of the top to, of a company to be 150 but we also don't need it to be 3 right so it's not america and it's not australia we need a little bit more differentiation so that a hugger person can go and do hugging and if 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 they happen to say you know i can also do something else i can see an opportunity where i can start my own little company and things let them do it let them do it and reward them for that reward the 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 innovation so my way is sort of more complex my what i foresee what i wish for is more complex than just either alternative tax to death or you know complete capitalist freedom is use ai to generate wealth and reinvest that wealth in the things that what machines cannot do and keep some of that wealth to reward entrepreneurial um, endeavors of all kinds make grants make 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 whatever public competitions make something where you see somebody's trying doing make the small business loans like they have in india you want 200 dollars i'll give you 200 dollars you don't have to pay me back make a company if you want another 200 dollars no unless your company is running mm. if you come next year with another idea you want 200 more dollars no unless your first company is running but i'll give you the first 200 dollars something like that right let's do it that way let's make let's unlock the potential of people to be creative that's a really interesting ideology, I think, to incentivize people by giving them the first bone to grab. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, um, there was an experiment in Finland, I think, a few years where people didn't have to have a job. They just got a basic salary. Universal basic income. Right. Yeah. And they switched it off for after a while because it didn't quite work. It didn't have enough of the incentivize to give people a sense of, of challenge and of accomplishment. Mm. We need that. If you go to the pure communist systems, the Russia and, and, and so forth from, you know, 50 years ago, when people are not incentivized to... To, to achieve something, they lose heart. That, that, that sense of goal, of purpose, of joy, of, cre of achieving a milestone is gone. You have to put that in place. And if you put a monetary reward there by the wealth that the AI generates for you, it doesn't even matter if it's slightly artificial as long as that is there. So we have to be clever in society to use technology to, to, to create those kinds of incentives for society. And I think that's going to require quite a lot of thought. And it seems to me that in Australia, there is willingness and thoughtfulness here, 
more sometimes than the craziness that you see in the States or the stasis that you see in Europe. So this play, maybe somewhere one can actually try something here or Singapore or one or two other countries where there's a certain amount of flexible thinking. You know, Ed, some people, when you talk about AI, become apprehensive, a little bit of trepidation in the air. What's your biggest fear of AI in the future? My biggest fear is is Luddite reactions. Um, when you talk to people today, so in my life today, for the last three months, I give about two talks a week about generative AI, why should you not be afraid of ChatGPT, <laughs> how simple it is, how it's not going to take over your job, etc. One to outside and one to inside the university. And people are always relieved when they hear this because they've been listening to all this hype about AI is going to take over the world and Elon Musk says that robots are going to blah, blah, blah. To me, that's just noise. That's alarmism that's irresponsible, that creates fear. Unfortunately, although I don't believe that it's going to happen in AI, because AI, <laughs> ChatGPT has no goals, it has no self, it cannot, right? The fear is real and people's responses to fear is real, especially when it's coupled with economic disruption or uncertainty. The response of societies when coupled that way is, is a Luddite reaction. They start burning down the factories, they start burning down, they start witch hunting AI and so on. That's my fear. My fear is that through a lack of understanding of what AI is and how much it can bring to us, people are going to have to turn against AI and have a reaction. Now, if you think about the history of science, about the history of, human, of humanity, whenever a new technology has been introduced, a major new technology, it has caused death, whether it's fire or transportation, the plane or the car, Every new technology, new medicines, new whatever, sometimes things go wrong. Deaths have happened. AI is going to be no different. When AI starts misdiagnosing things or when it starts controlling missiles and they go wrong or et cetera, et cetera. Or driving. Or driving, it's going to cause death. People will jump on this, is my fear, and say, oh, let's stop AI. What do we see in Europe already? They have legislated generative AI. They don't even understand what it is. I don't understand what it is fully. They've already blocked it. That is stasis and stupidity. In this country, sort of in the United States, they're just sort of gathering information and sort of feeling at the National Institute of Standards and Technology and other places, and people are going to Congress and, and sort of testifying. In this country, Two and a half months ago, the government asked for two studies, one about education, one about industry and regulations. What should we do about this generative AI? How should we respond? And so then subsequently, I've been involved, I was involved with both studies from the university, and we've been talking with people in Canberra about how do we formulate adequate regulations? What do we do, right? Must we make rules? Must we make guidelines? Must we make standards? How do we respond carefully and in a measured way so that we protect ourselves, but we don't kill the thing because it's stupid to kill something where you don't know how well it, how much it can do for you. So I think that's the challenge for us. And if we do missteps here, we will eventually have my fear about a light reaction become realized. There's enough people in any society in this one as well, where people are just blindly uh, not informed, I won't say stupid, but that's what I mean. And they allow themselves to be led by misinformation or disinformation even to do the wrong thing. We should not go there. 
we should educate and understand and guide so that we have good applications of AI and avoid a lot of attraction. That's my biggest fear. It reminds me of a video I saw this morning about a, a man that just punches a, <laughs> a robot. <laughs> Homeless man punches an AI robot. <laughs> on the street. Um, <laughs> I could see that happening on a, on a larger scale. But uh, I think it's, you touched on an important point where there are people that are very much against the use and dissemination of AI in various industries. One of the biggest ones is education. And we've already seen this sort of backlash against students using large language models to help them with their assignments. There's been uh, tools like GPT-0 and Turnitin that have come out recently that claim to sort of detect AI-generated sentences. And the universities all around Australia have actually turned on this feature. So I guess I'm, you know, this this is in the in the sphere of our companies in Sidium. But do you have any thoughts on what the response should be to technologies like this in the education system? And I think you're on a government panel for that as well. Uh, I helped write the response there, and it was actually very interesting writing the response because they were very clearly represented the two poles within the university. One pole saying, let's go very, very slowly, and let's not allow generative AI and chat GPT to be too much used. Let's rather ban it for a while just because. We don't know, and and students will cheat, and who knows the misinformation that'll come out and stuff, and the other and and IP rights and so on, and the other side saying, how can we not? Other universities are doing this. I know people at other at equivalent levels in other universities in the country who are saying, here's our two-page guidance sheet to our faculty. Go for it. Let's see what happens. I think. As I was saying before, we don't know enough to actually go and make a ruling on either side. We should go and collect best practices and allow people in their individual educational situations, whether they're teaching a class or they're running a, a seminar or they, they're marking something, let them see what comes to their mind as the best solution. I've been going around the university giving talks about this and collecting exactly from the medical school, from education itself, etc. What do you do? And you, it's very interesting, the, the responses you hear. Some person up here in computer science, he says, I used to ask students to program something. Here's the assignment, make a program to do it. Now I give them the program and I say, what does the program do? And ChatGPT cannot do that. It simply cannot do that. Somebody else said something. <laughs> I give them an assignment. First, use ChatGPT, write me a little essay, and then an increasingly complex variation of that assignment on top of the first one to the point where ChatGPT is just so confused it cannot do it. And increasingly, you see the student get in, play around with the prompts, discover the prompts, don't do it, and then rejigger the results so that I get a composite result out, partly ChatGPT, partly student, but a much more thoughtful thing. I can show you studies that were done in MIT and other places about how writing quality and speed and everything increase when you have ChatGPT. But if you have ChatGPT plus informed sort of analysis by the author, you get a much better product. But you have to have both, right? So I think we in education, in the education space, should not jump for simplistic solutions like, well, I'm going to have a chat GPT sniffer and it's just going to, I, I feed all the, I turn it in, I'm going to feed the, the exam in there and it's going to tell me yes or no. Most universities I've heard of in Europe have banned those things because they falsely accuse foreigners and others who don't speak the language properly. They're just not allowed to be used anymore. 
I think uh, the solution that, say, Syncidium has come up with is actually a phenomenally clever solution because it, it sits in a, in a position in this whole ecosystem which is not uh, a, a sort of an intelligent position to be. It's not an easily defeated, defeated one. So I think, again, we need to be clever in the way we look at the use of generative AI in education, and we need to be open to new ways of doing things. If it means a little bit of new work or different work on the part of the, the, the educator, the teacher, so be it. That's your job. It's very much the same as in research. When you talk about research too, many people are using ChatGPT now to write their <coughs> related work section. Excuse me. <coughs> so. It's so much quicker to go to ChatGPT and say, here's my area, this is what I'm doing. Just go through all the work you know of and tell me what happened. Mm -hmm. Of course you have to check that it did it and not just hallucinated it. But it's a much better way of doing that part of the work. Then some people go and say, well, I'm thinking about doing this. How would you structure the experiment? And ChatGPT is quite willing to tell you how to structure the experiment, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, right? <laughs> That's a little more questionable, that's a little more <laughs> problematic. For the tasks that are much more rote, summarizing minutes, summarizing related work things, use ChatGPT, focus your energy on the creative parts where the thing cannot work so well. It's very much like a, an experience I remember from graduate school where I was in computer science, the next building was, was anthropology. And somebody finished, she came up for finishing her PhD after three and a half years. And the committee was split down the middle. They said, three and a half years? It takes you two and a half years just to do a literature review. You have to go to all these libraries and find out all these things and stuff. How can you come up? And she said, well, I use this thing called Google. And they said, Google? What's Google? And they said, <laughs> she said, look, this is how it works. And this is what the, inter the, the World Wide Web is and stuff, because it was new then. So half the committee said, You've, got, you've done the work, it's all here, it's, it's adequate, good, good for you, you use the new tools. And the other half of the committee said, no, you haven't got your sweat and blood and you haven't paid your price and so you can't get the thesis. There's a big fight inside that department about what to do. Of course today they will use Google. We're in exactly the same position with generative AI. We all of us have to, in the educational sphere, whether it's for research or whether it's for teaching or even whether it's for administration of the university, we have to figure out new ways of doing old things and offloading the things that are trivial and easy and it can do and bringing on the things that are harder and require more thought and more creativity. Some people are going to love that. Some people are going to hate that. The ones who hate it, maybe they can find a different job. The ones who love it, great. The product is better, you love your job, we can move ahead. Brilliant. Ed, we're going to move on to a little bit more of a fun activity that we're going to introduce into the podcast series. So we're going to call it the quick fire round. Basically, we're going to ask you a series of rapid questions that were generated by AI that require short, spontaneous answers. Uh-oh, sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, they're mostly fun. So the first question that AI has generated is, if aliens landed on Earth tomorrow and offered to take you home with them, would you go? For sure I would go, as long as I can come back. <laughs> and the first question I'd ask them actually is, show me the collection of the world knowledge, your world's knowledge. And if they showed me something like the internet, which is half pornography and half this and that, I would say, oh my God, take me home immediately. <laughs> Get me out of this universe. If they showed me something like Wikipedia, where I can learn a lot, and I would say, wow, 
that's fantastic. I want to learn more. And I would do reciprocally <laughs> the same for them, actually. Another question. If you could morph two animals to create the ultimate animal, what two animals would you choose and why? <laughs> I know, actually. I would choose a falcon and a dog. A falcon because it flies better than almost any other bird and it has phenomenal eyesight and it can see things far away, it can sort of spy out the land and a dog because it's warm and friendly and cuddly. So I would take that on my journeys with me because my eyesight isn't all that wonderful and having something that can see <laughs> far and actually can warm and stuff, but something that's nice to be with, that's what I would like to do. In your well-articulated mind, how many chickens would it take to defeat an elephant? I have no idea. Probably two. Why? Why? I'd put them one on each eye. <laughs> interesting, interesting. If you had to replace your hands with something other than hands or claws, what would you choose and why? Oh, this is a difficult one. Could I choose mental power or is that not allowed? Sure, I suppose. Okay, <laughs> we don't make the rules. Tell me, uh, here, here, here is what I do. I would get myself a robot with like three or four hands, and I would put an EEG cap on myself, <laughs> and I would then run it through an LLM like like ChatGPT, and then I would train it to think. So when I thought, move this here and do this there, the robot would do it for me. This may sound like science fiction, but I predict that within five years we're going to see this happening. And I'm, I'm trying to, I've just written a proposal to try to make that happen here. So we'll see. But I think that's, that's a possibility. That's not beyond reality. Another question for you. This, this is a good one. Is water wet? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why? <laughs> when, I was, when I was about six, we had a little record, a little musical thing. Why is water so wet? It's a little noddy, which is a character by Enid Blyton. And that made me think, what is wetness? And I think <laughs> when, you, when you define <laughs> that feeling, by definition, that's wet. And that's all. There is nothing more to it, even though it sounds deep. <laughs> if you could have dinner with any person dead or, or alive, who would you choose and oh, why? I often have this. When I sit in a plane, I have discussions with famous people. And sometimes when I'm listening to music, I discuss with Bach. I happen to like classical music. And I play Count Basie or I play, I don't know, hip hop or something. And he says, what the hell is this noise? And I tell him, this is what music has evolved to. And he says, tell me. And I show him the, the, the growth, the tree, of life of music and we explore we dip into little points and he hears this is how rhythm evolved through jazz this is how chordal structure became so complex in jazz this is how sort of or rhythm evolved or didn't evolve in rock and others right and or or modern you know classical music and the atonality and we explore that space but the person i love best is leonardo da vinci and we sit in this plane and we put our seats together and he's looking around and somehow we can converse and he's look, asking me every single thing because he doesn't know, right? He sees he's in a, 
in a box and there's these seats and there's people, but they're wearing strange clothes and they're doing strange things. And there's this, and, and then he feels this, and what do we, and he looks outside and he's, ah, we're flying, right? And can imagine, right? And I explain to him, he says, how does this thing work? And then I draw the shape of the wing with the airfoil and, and the pressure differential and what lifts the thing. And I, how does the engine push? And I show him all the stuff. And within a 45 minute time, we've covered a lot of science and he's just just blooming with joy. I can imagine him. Could you imagine sitting mm. to Leonardo and having that discussion? That's what I would do. Brilliant. In our orange tradition, we're going to leave you with a question that our previous guest came up with, and then we're going to get you to ask a question for our next guest. My question to you is, what's one truth or realization you've come to that you wish you could whisper in the ear of your younger self? Oy, this is a little embarrassing, but it is be more lenient with others because I, I'm sadly too quick to judge and I have often felt afterwards embarrassed that I made a hasty judgment not knowing the full situation of the other person and it's you know, you can't go back and apologize. Sometimes you do and it's sort of awkward and they look at you and it's like, I'm over it, you know, and you feel stupid. Or if you don't apologize, you still feel stupid and you beat yourself up. And it's something I try to tell myself now all the time. Just take a moment and before you judge, make up your mind. You know what you feel, but don't say anything because there may be more information coming in later. I wish I could do that more and I, sh I, sh I wish I had done that at certain points in my life earlier on that's the, that's something i certainly want to tell my son and my daughter inspiring beautiful and a question that you want to provide to the next guest whoever that may be the question i was thinking about this before is like if if you in your job or in your life but in your job don't have at least one point of happiness per day. Is it okay for you to leave, even though leaving that job means that you would have to do a very much more mundane or, or, or a less prestigious or a less rewarding or a less financially remunerative job? Is, is the, the one point of pleasure or creative joy equal to all the other material benefits you get for yourself and your family? Deep. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Ed, this has been our episode of the Orange Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time and pleasure. Pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. It's so nice to have a chance to chat. Lovely. Thanks, Ed. Now, we talk a lot about business and entrepreneurship, but to build the future, you need people and a place to build from. Discover the perfect workspace for collaboration and productivity. Melbourne Connect Coworking is offering our viewers an exclusive 25% discount on 12-month memberships. Quote Orange when you submit your inquiry. Links are available in the description now.